personally to become his own son or daughter because of the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners who have been forgiven, such as you and me, those who believe the gospel by faith alone. And so now we continue in Galatians, down through the passage, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 4. We're going to read down through verse 20. And we see a case study. We see a picture of what sons and daughters, those who have truly been changed by the gospel, do in the lives of those they love. So if you would, give your attention to God's Word. Galatians 4, verse 8, down through verse 20. Would you stand, if you're willing and able, this morning for the reading of God's Word? Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. It took millions of chisel strikes for Jang Chun Hui to make this. It is the largest wooden sculpture in the world made out of a single tree trunk. It was made after a famous Chinese painting called Along the River During the Qingming Festival in the 12th century. It captures the daily life and landscape of 12th century Beijing. It is called, the painting is called, China's Mona Lisa. The wooden carving took Zhang four years to complete. The carving itself is more than 40 feet by 10 feet by 7 feet in size. Zhang says that it took millions of chisel strikes and billions of Dremel rotations to make this. In Zhang's intricate sculpture, you see boats and bridges and people and towers. The intricacy of this has made it a veritable masterpiece that is priceless. 
If beauty can be made from a tree trunk through millions of chisel strikes and billions of Dremel rotations, how much more can your life become beautiful to the world through the pressing, continual chisel strike of grace that comes from gracious conflicts in your life? Scholars say that Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20, are perhaps the greatest case study of 1 Corinthians 13 in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, as many of you know, is the love chapter of Scripture. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not keep a record of wrong, and so on. And here you have a case study of what that looks like in real life. And Paul takes these Galatians, his friends, seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he is not afraid to confront them with the beauty of the gospel. He knows that if he really is an adopted son, he is not fearful of what they will think of him if they reject him. He is not scared of what God himself will think of him because he knows that God holds him as a child, sings over him his love, and so Paul is able to do very courageous things in the life of his friends. And he chisels and he chisels and he chisels and he chisels to show us the beauty that can become those who are called the adopted sons and daughters of God. So if you're willing, take out your sermon outline and let's look this morning at the good encouraging news that by the chisel of gracious conflict, Christ's image is formed in you. Please hear me. One of the reasons why you are growing in your relationship with Christ is because you have had people come into your life and chisel away the dross and the sin and reveal the idols of your heart to you. That's how you grow. Yes, it's by God's preached word. It is by his word. It is by God himself initiating his gracious presence in your life. It is also through trials but for many of us, perhaps the way that God has most powerfully moved has been through the confrontations that he has brought into our life, the interpersonal confrontations where people have pointed out to us the good news of the gospel of grace. This passage teaches one very simple truth, that it is by the chisel of gracious conflict that Christ's image is formed in you. And this text shows us a principle, and the principle is very simple. That gracious conflict, gracious conflict is a tender love. When you confront a brother and sister, you know how hard it is to do that. It is perhaps the most tenderest of loves that you can possibly offer to them. Michelangelo said that in every piece of granite, there is an angel waiting to be set free. And so also in every believer, there is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a beautiful picture of Christ's work in the world, waiting to be sanctified, to be nurtured, to be set, as it were, free to the world. Are you ready for that? Are you willing to be chiseled away by the power of the Holy Spirit? 
Are you willing to love other people enough to go and to graciously confront them? Well, let's learn how to do that. First, Paul has a concern for the Galatians. Now, the Galatians, as you know, we've looked over these weeks, were a people that Paul, he didn't actually intend to stop in Galatia. The text here says that Paul stopped in Galatia because of, of a bodily ailment. And they received him warmly. They brought him in that his image, whatever, whatever that bodily ailment was, which we'll talk about in just a minute, whatever it was, had disfigured him in some way. And the Galatians didn't hold him in disregard or disrespect, but they warmly embraced him and received him as Jesus himself. And not only did they receive him as a visitor, but they warmly welcomed him into their community. And when he preached the good news of the gospel to them, they received it by faith. They understood that you are saved not because of what you do, but because of Jesus Christ's finished work for you. And they turned from their pagan idolatries to the good news of the gospel. And so here Paul is coming back to the Galatians, and he is saying to them, friends, I have a concern for you. You have returned again to the weak and the worthless, the text says, lower your eyes and see it, the elementary principles of the world. Now, the word in Greek for the elementary principles of the world is stoiku to kosmu. It's, it, it literally refers to the principal elements of pagan society of wind and fire and rock and weather, the things that made up the physical world for those who believed in a pagan worldview. And it refers to the fact that if you were an ancient uh, farmer, then you would go and you would pray to the farm god. If you were an ancient soldier, then you would go and you would pray to Ares, the ancient god of war. If you were one who was in love, you would go and pray to Aphrodite, the god of love, and so on and so forth. Because it was your job as a creature to appease the gods of wind and fire and water and rock and rain. And Paul is saying, you guys have returned back to that because you have subjected yourself again to a works righteousness under the law. But this is where the book of Galatians gets very interesting because Paul says, listen, you have not only turned back to the weak and worthless principles of the world, but actually you've done something even worse than you did when you were a pagan and did not believe in Jesus. You have used the law. You have used your works righteousness to set you apart from the world. You have used circumcision, which, my gosh, you heard the good news of the gospel of grace. It is one thing for someone who doesn't know Jesus to be ignorant of the doctrines of grace, but you know them. You have heard them. You have seen them. You have tasted it. And yet you have done the exact same thing you look down your nose at the pagans for doing. In fact, yours is worse. Because Paul says, in very clear, clear terms, there are two ways to run from the gospel of grace. One is through paganism and outright irreligion. And one is through using moral Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, to worship and serve idols of works righteousness and of achievement. 
Let me give you an example. There, there was a young man that I once knew who many years ago became a Christian. And um, do you know what the cage stage is? Have you ever heard that phase? So here's how it works. There were, when many people who grew up in the church, they grow up extremely um, moral. They're, they're bound by the stories. They read the Bible as a collection of individual stories that they are to emulate instead of one story made up of 66 different books all telling the same story. People tend to use the Bible to like, you know, determine these moral caricatures, kind of like a, a moral accepted Aesop's fable. And once they hear the doctrines of grace, that it's not based upon what you do, but it's about Jesus Christ opening your heart and heart, your hardened and hiding heart. And he sheds abroad in your heart the good news of the gospel. And all of a sudden, you feel like you have wings. And grace becomes beautiful to you. And no longer is Jesus like a cowboy trying to prod you into the corral, but he's like a shepherd who leads in front of you and you joyfully just like we sang earlier, like he turns duty into a choice because you see the grace of God given to you and so you gladly obey scripture because of what he's done for you. You don't obey scripture in order to get him to love you. You see the difference. And when you understand those doctrines of grace, you've operated for many, many years as a Christian through this moralistic methodology that says I must do good works for God to continue to be pleased with me. And so whenever you become a Christian and you hear the doctrines of grace, you go through what's called the cage stage. It usually lasts for three to five years in people's lives where they look back upon their upbringing and they look back upon the way they were taught the Bible and they're actually kind of angry and they're frustrated because why didn't people teach me about grace sooner? I wasted so much of my life being self-righteous and arrogant, thinking that it somehow accommodated me to God. But many people who are in this cage stage after they come to Christ and they kind of get angry and they have a new content of doctrine, but actually they still use the same methodology of change. And that is that now I understand the five points of Calvinism, or I understand the whatever it is. And they begin to look down their nose at other people, their former church, their other people that they used to know, and they begin to, with smugness, resent them. And they begin to grow with a superiority complex that is extremely harmful and dangerous. Something similar is happening here in Galatia. They have become Christians. They have been exposed to the doctrines of grace. But then these Judaizers come in and say, you know what the trick of the Christian life is? You actually need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Old Testament law for God to be cool with you. And so then they run and they keep the law. And they look down their nose at anybody who doesn't keep it. And they become smug. And they become arrogant. Do you know, do you know that case to be true in your life? The glory of hearing and learning good theology is weighty. And if you're not careful, it will taint you into being smug and arrogant. And then the question becomes, you do not know the theology like you think you do. 
Because good theology is always good application of that theology into the world with love, not with self-righteousness. The more you learn about the doctrines of grace, the more humbled you are that you would even be included in God's kingdom. The longer you walk with Jesus, you may actually be, more, be growing more holy as the world looks at you, but you feel like you're growing more sinful because you see the depth of your sin so much more clearly in light of the height and beauty of his cross. And so therefore, when you become a Christian and you hear the doctrines of grace, it should make you yearn and pray and praise God for the journey he's taking you through. Not to grow more smug because now you understand the real heartbeat of God as it's given to us in Scripture. I mentioned earlier, there was a man that I once knew who was incredibly moralistic and very smug. And he had a tendency to measure himself against other people to determine whether or not he was really growing with Jesus, actually. And if he was better than the next person, then he would assume he's growing with Christ. And if he wasn't as moral as that person, then he would assume he's not. And so he was really a man in bondage. It was extremely, he blew up relationships because he couldn't keep them because he had no grace in his life. And you know what it was that brought him out of that? It wasn't because he read the Bible. He could tell you a lot of the Bible. It wasn't because he went to church. He was always there three times a week. It wasn't because he didn't know theology. Do you know what broke him out of that? I was broken out of that by my brother. It was my brother, my real blood brother, who took me to a steak restaurant in my North Texas hometown and sat me down and said to me, little brother, I love you so much. But listen, Jesus calls us to be people of love that's the mark of our growth in the gospel. And I love you. I hear you. I'm paying the bill. Don't worry. But I've got some tough news for you. I don't see that love. And you say you're growing with Jesus, but you're becoming a jerk. And that's not what Jesus calls us to do. And in my own heart, it was the gracious confrontation which was the greatest display to me of a tender love. And it came from my own brother. And I look back on my college days, I can see other examples where guys have graciously confronted me. And it was the power of that gracious confrontation that actually has helped mold me and shape me. And Paul talks about this in... Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, listen, I, I, I'm not concerned with what you think about me, Paul says. I'm not owned by other people's opinion of me. In fact, I don't even care what I think about myself. What I really care about is what God thinks of me. And he has called me to become a loving person, in this case, to the Corinthians. Paul is concerned for these Galatians because they have turned a good and right and beautiful law, the law of God, and they have used it as a way of showing moral one-upmanship to the world, and they have become jerks. Are you a jerk? Or does going good theology melt you into seeing the beautiful grace of God in your life? Hmm? John Calvin said, you were wandering in darkness. How disgraceful it is now in the midst of light 
that you should stray so horribly. The Galatians were less excusable for corrupting the gospel than they had been for their formal idolatries. Martin Luther said, whoever has fallen from the article of justification is ignorant of justification is a 50 cent word that just means that God has forgiven you and wiped clear all of your sins by faith alone and he has given you his own righteousness to cover you so that when the father looks at you, you are legally guilt-free, innocent, even righteous in his sight. He says, those who have fallen away from that great article are ignorant of God and are an idolater. It is all one thing whether he afterwards turn again to the law or to worshiping of idols. It is all now, whether he be a monk, a Turk, a Jew, or an Anabaptist, that he has become an idolater when he turns from justification. For when this article is taken away, there remaineth nothing else except error, hypocrisy, impiety, and idolatry. Let's take it a little bit deeper. Paul says in this phrase, he says, listen, in uh, verse, uh, where is it? In verse 9, but now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. The term rather could be translated, or more importantly. Paul is saying, listen, now that you've come to know God, or, or check your hearts, Galatians, actually become known by God because what did you do for God to know? You didn't do anything. God initiated it, and then you gladly chose. Please don't confuse the order, Galatians, he says. You become known by God. And Paul is doing this to remind them of the gospel, to say that, friends, you did nothing to earn salvation. Why then do you act now like you did something to earn it? Why do you act like this is somehow like you're more moral than the rest of the world? Listen, you're not. It's by grace. Please don't return back to a yoke of righteousness that you cannot ever have. One writer writes, Richard Lovelace says, that Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them at Jesus, in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians. Please hear me. Because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness that they are supposed to have, their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal and pharisaical righteousness, but envy and jealousy and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. When this is evident in another person, when you see this kind of growing insecurity in them, being nice to them can be really mean. And being mean to them can be one of the nicest things you could ever do. What do I mean? I mean that when you see your brother or sister or your spouse or your husband or your wife becoming more and more insecure because they believe that their moral spiritual achievements somehow are necessary to maintain a right relationship with God. Listen, it is not 
an elective in the course of Christianity. It is a required course. It is required of us as those who demonstrate love to confront them graciously. And listen, our church is being planted, and we're planting other churches in the buckle of the Bible belt. And people sometimes ask me, when I came from New Jersey, when I was at Princeton, they, when it came, and I came here, they would ask me, which, which is a harder place to preach? And by far and away, Oklahoma is a much harder place to preach. Because I would know within 10 seconds whether or not they were Christians or not by their response. But here, oh, that is wonderful. Oh, we love that. Yes, we have five podcasts we listen to every week, and we know all. Of, but really, people tend to grow in their caverns of religious defensiveness, and they don't actually let the gospel of grace call them to love one another well. And so we tend to silo up, damaged by the hurt and the shame of the churches in our area, of pastors in our area, of people in our area. And friends, one of the greatest balms Yes, it is reading the Psalms as we're going to study all summer. Yes, it is coming to community group. But in so doing, the greatest balm is having a community where it is okay to be broken. It is okay to need grace. The only prerequisite for you to be here is that you acknowledge that you do not deserve to be part of Christ's church. And that he and his grace has opened up your heart to believe. Do you know that? Paul has a great concern for the Galatians, and that is that they have returned to something worse than their paganism. They've used religion to keep Jesus away. Have you? Or are there people in your life that you have bandwidth and history with that you need to graciously confront? Sometimes being mean, as it were, can be the most loving and nice thing you can do. Paul has, um, in verses 12 through 14, taken the time to give the Galatians a sense of his history. Paul can do this because he has trust with these guys. They've spent some time together. Paul says, listen, when I came to you, I was a wreck. You took me in because of my bodily ailment. And what this bodily ailment is, we don't know. Most scholars believe there's good reason to believe it was an eye injury or an ailment to his eyesight in some way, shape, or form. We don't exactly know for sure. But you know at the end of the book of Galatians, it says, See with what large letters I am writing to you, as though he's writing large letters in order to help his eyesight so he can actually see what he's writing it says uh, in this very text, it says it was because of an illness that I, that I preached to you. And verse 15, if you see the text, it says, I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That may be metaphorical or that may be quite literal. We don't know. But whatever the case may be, Paul shared their history of how they took him in how they shared a wonderful season together of thinking about the gospel. They displayed to Paul an amazing amount of gracious love. And Paul looks at them. He turns from his history in 12 to 14, and then he starts asking some pretty serious questions. He says, listen, it is by 
gracious conflict that you see the tenderest of love. It is by the chisel of gracious conflict that Christ's image is formed in you. Here's the concern. Here's our history together. And then he says, let me ask you some questions. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Do you know that those guys who are teaching you to go back to the law, they want to make much of themselves? But people who preach the gospel don't want to be made much of. They want you to make much of Jesus. Listen, the reason they want to make much of you is because they want to control you. They want to be able to say, look, these are our trophies. Look how powerful, or look what good rhetoricians we are. Look what good Jews we are. They're using you. Do not fall again to a yoke of slavery, Paul says to them. Gracious conflict is a tender love. When he says, am I now your enemy, in Greek he puts enemy first. It's like, you know, um, you, know you can imagine Yoda saying, your enemy, am I now? That's the way it reads in Greek. Am I your enemy? Do you hate me because I'm telling you the truth? Some of you, listen, need to risk being enemies of your friends in order to help them see the truth of the gospel. That the gracious, most gracious thing you can do sometimes is by confronting them with the tenderest of loves. Do you know that to be true? The mark of our growth as a church is not our numbers. It's a mark, not the mark. One of the greatest marks of our growth of a church is how healthy are we interrelationally. Is this the no judgment zone where people can bring in baggage and they can leave it at the cross? And where we together as friends and brothers and sisters can be so amazed by the finished work of Jesus that we are able to hold each other accountable. I accountable to the elders of this church and our elders to the presbytery of the PCA and the presbytery to the PCA's general assembly. You to this session. We can hold each other accountable to be able to walk tenderly and graciously with each other because that, listen, that doesn't, it's not a method for growing numbers in a church. But you know what it is a method of? It's a method of growing in your deep joy of the gospel. And that's what we're about. We want you to grow in joy because we want you something with far more potential than a tree trunk in China to be able to be changed and contoured by a billion of Dremel rotations to shape you and mold you, by millions of chisel strikes to help refine you. Are you willing to be confronted in that way? Or do you use your good theology or the place where you go to church or who your pastor is or what you know to actually keep Jesus from confronting you because that is worse than paganism. It is using religion to maintain an idolatry that looks like Christianity, but isn't. My wife calls the people who come up to you and confront you sandpaper people. She calls them that because they're tough to be around, but they smooth our rough edges and they love you. There was a Russian priest many years ago whose, whose name was Father John Sergeyev. He was a Russian priest in a time when the population of Russian Orthodoxy was exploding. 
And John Sergeyev would go out into the streets of St. Petersburg at night when all the other monks would stay in the monastery. And no one in the town dared to go out because of the menaces of the St. Petersburg streets. But Father John would go out. And he would go out every night. And he knew all the menaces by name. He knew all the thugs. He knew all the prostitutes. And he would walk up to his friends. There's a story where he walked up one day to a prostitute on the street in St. Petersburg. And she's sitting on the curb. And he walks up to her and he picks her up by the hand and he puts his hands ever so tenderly under her cheeks and he looks her in the eye and he says to her, oh child of God, you were made for more than this. Have you ever heard of grace? It changes you. To whom will you be, Father John? I know some of you need Father John's. That's probably true. But to whom will you be Father John? Listen, the weight of your sandpaper is just right for somebody in your life. And the most loving, gracious thing you can do is to gently confront them with love to walk in line with the truth of the gospel. If you wait for the elders of this church or for your pastor to be the one that does all the confronting, listen, you will wear your elders systematically out and you will burn me out. You've got to be the church together. We've got to be confronting one another. And yes, please call upon the session and please call upon the elders of your church. That's what we're for, to help give you the encouragement. But if you have someone close to you that you need to confront, our first word of advice is, have you done what Matthew 18 calls you to do? Have you confronted them? Have you done what Galatians 6.1 says? Ye who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, lest also you watch yourself so that you're not tempted. Have you done that? To whom will you be a Father John? Oh, Trinity, let us be people who are the most loving sandpaper people we could possibly be because we love each other enough to see that with inside of each one of us, we've never met a mere mortal, as Lewis says that we see our spouse and we don't just see them in all of their weaknesses, but we see what they can be in the gospel. When you look at your children, you don't just see them as your children who, oh my gosh, are not listening to you as a parent, but you can see what they could become. When you see your best friends, you don't just see them as a friend who's there to meet your needs, but you see what amazing gifts they have. Paul says, become like me as I become like you. He's not asking for clones. He's not asking for little Pauls. We're not asking for you to be little Blakes. Oh my gosh, this place would be horrible. We're not asking for you to be little elders. We're not asking, we're asking you to be little Christs with all of the gifts he's given you so that when you come to worship, I see a different refraction of Jesus when I look at Addison. I see a different refraction of Jesus when I look at Kendall and Katie and Ryan and Sierra. Like you help me see the beautiful diamond of Christ when you're here and the cadence of your singing, and the tone of your voice, and the feel of your hug, I get to see a different aspect of the body of Christ because you are that body. And we are called, therefore, to not just keep each other at bay. We are called to enter into one another's life. Are you willing to do that, even as Paul did? He sets out a perfect case study. He expresses his concern in 8 through 11. He recounts history together in verses 12 through 14. 
And then he asks them some hard, gracious, loving questions in 15 on down through 20. And he says, listen, I wish I could change my tone, but I'm perplexed about you. Oh, Trinity, let us be able to love each other well enough to go through the pains of confrontation. It'll be like labor pains, Paul says. It'll hurt. A mother is only supposed to give birth to one child once. And Paul says, I have to give birth to you, it feels like twice, because you've turned back again to the yoke of bondage of the law. Obey the law, yes, but only in light of what Jesus has done for you. Please don't circumcise yourself. Do not obey the law, he says to the Galatians, in order to get God to owe you something, for he owes you nothing. He has come to you by grace. Do you know that? Are you willing to become the Father John that somebody needs? Are you able to know that your security rests not in your moral performance, not in your job performance at work, but it rests in the one who holds you in the palm of his hand, the great shepherd of the sheep, and he has you and he will never let you go. And so therefore you can take risks and love people well even when it's hard because your Savior loves you. And he has absorbed on that cross all the hurt and shame that you've caused him. And he sings over you with his love today. As you prepare for the supper, ask yourself, to whom do I need to be a Father John this week? And let the Holy Spirit contour you and shape you and change you by the power of his word. For he intends to change you. How is he at work in you to do that? Let's pray together. Father, every week through the doors of this church, there walk people who are bound in sin. And Father, we pray that you will help us to be people who the older we get, the more our eyes are open to the depth of our sin, but also in so experiencing that, the heights of your love only grows greater. And that you might strengthen us to not be so fearful of what others think about us, but be able to say, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? And help us to love each other as my own blood brother loved me enough to call me out years ago. Help me to be that kind of brother to my sisters in this room to my brothers in this room and help them to be that for me for the glory of the cross of Christ which is our only hope and all of God's people said together amen and amen